We are uh, studying probably the greatest letter ever written in the history of humankind. And it's great because of the problem it solves. It's great because of the solution that's offered. It's great because of the results that come when you actually believe what's in this book, in this letter. We've seen that uh, Paul so far has been focused upon the theme of how we are found acceptable before God. And uh, God, uh, uh, Paul, first of all, shows us the need for this in Romans 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, that we're all condemned by the law, therefore have no hope of being found acceptable based on our own performance in the past, in the present, or in the future. That's completely surrendered. And therefore, we need another answer than human performance, religious and, or moral performance. And in chapter 3, verse 21, we see that now uh, God has revealed a way of righteousness apart from human performance, apart from the law. And this way is simply through faith in Jesus Christ. And in trusting in Him, then, we are declared righteous even though unrighteous. Some call that a myth. Uh, but what Paul says is... Yeah, it sounds that way. It sounds like Disney World, but it's really the truth. That when you trust in Christ, we've seen there's a double reckoning that goes on. First of all, our sins are reckoned to Him. And secondly, His performance, His righteousness is reckoned to us. And then Paul showed us in, in Romans chapter 4 how this was clearly played out in the life of Abraham. This is nothing new to the New Testament. This was the way Old Testament saints were declared righteous. It was through faith. We also saw in Romans 4 that although we are justified through faith alone, we are not justified through a faith that is alone. It is always accompanied by works. So much so that even James could say, don't you know, you're, you're not just justified by faith, you're justified by works. And what he means by that is that uh, just as Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her children. Uh, James is saying, your faith will be seen as real through your works. And James furthermore says, chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. It's not a real faith. So you're justified solely through the faith not through your works, but your works always accompany your faith. A living faith, a genuine faith, a saving faith is always accompanied by works. So we've seen the need for justification. We've seen the way of justification, how it works. And now as we turn to chapter 5, we're going to see some of the results of justification. Justification matters. It makes a big difference in the way you live your life. Now, in these first 11 verses that we're going to read, we're going to see the word rejoice several times. You'll see it three times. And in fact, you can look at the text right now with me before we read it. Uh, you can see uh, uh, in uh, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then you'll see that we also rejoice, verse 3, in our sufferings. And at the end in verse 11... We also rejoice in God. This word rejoice is actually the word for boasting. Uh, the translators translate it rejoice because it seems to be uh, the thrust of what the Apostle Paul means to convey, that justification brings great joy in specific ways. But I want us to focus also this morning on what the meaning of boasting is all about. Paul is saying that as a result of our justification, our lives consist now of some boasting that we didn't have before. Everybody boasts. You know, you boast about your grandchildren. Matter of fact, you all got a few minutes? I got some. Uh, we all got our pictures and our stories and th sto you know, things we can say about our children and grandchildren. We just, or we boast about, you know, we want to be real subtle about it, but how successful we are this way or the other. We want to act as though we're not bragging or not drawing attention to ourselves, but we sure enjoy it when others brag about us. You know, I'm tired of talking about me. You talk about me for a while. Uh, <clears throat> so we all have our boasts, but Paul says that when you are justified and you know it, 
you develop some new boasts in your life. And so this word rejoicing is actually boasting, and I want us to think of it in that way. So let's read the text and see what Paul is saying now. As a result of our justification, being declared righteous, even though unrighteous, that's what justification is. It's a declaration of your righteousness before the entire world, even though you're not righteous. It's an amazing phenomenon. Okay, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, let's look first of all at these first two verses. We rejoice or we boast in our hope of glory. We rejoice in our hope of glory. So now you're going to begin bragging or boasting about your hope of glory. Now let's look at why this is. First of all, in the first part of verse 1, we stand on our past justification. So there's something that's happened to us in the past that we're standing on. We're not, you know, I remember, <laughs> I think I may have mentioned this to you some years past, but when I was in the fraternity in college and we were having elections for officers for the next year and some folks were running for president and let's see, I was a third year man, so this would be my, my class that was standing now for election and they, there were several candidates for president. One of them was my friend Stubal. And I've told you about Stubal. He was about, you know, 21 years old. He was already balding, you know, just a thin wisp of hair. He loved his Marlboro cigarettes. And he also always had a Schlitz beard in his left hand. And he would just, and he would just sit back there and make, you know, cynical remarks. That was Stubal. I got all kinds of Stubal stories. But uh, <laughs> anyway, everybody that got nominated to be president got up and gave their little three to four minute speech. You know, they got in front of the whole fraternity and they made a speech about why they thought they should be president. And so when they called on Stubal, he just said, I just stand on my record. <laughs> I don't know if he got any votes, but it was the best campaign speech I ever heard in my life. Well, it's even more laughable for you to say you're going to stand on your record than it was for Stubal. We don't stand on our record. We stand on our justification in Jesus Christ. That's our record. It's his record. So that's what Paul is saying. We are standing on our past justification. And not because we're standing on our performance or even standing on our, uh, our great intelligence and humility in trusting Jesus. We're not standing on our faith. We're standing on Christ. So faith is the instrument through which we connect to Christ. But it's not, our faith is not the grounds for our justification. It's not because you believe. You're not saved because of your faith. You're saved through your faith because of what Jesus did for you. And that's what Paul is making very clear here. Uh, uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and notice that we stand solely on that. Now, I'll give you an example. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, he makes this very clear. Christ died for the ungodly. He's making it very clear that he didn't die for good people. 
It's not because you've taken a step in the right direction. Now God does the rest of it. Or God did most of it and now you take the last step. No, God did all of it. And you're standing on his righteousness alone. It is the righteousness of Christ that is reckoned to you through your faith in him. So we stand on our past justification. Now, secondly, notice that we enjoy our present benefits. Because of this, verses 1b and 2a, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this idea of peace. You know, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says that uh, the, the peace of God that passes all understanding will be yours. So that's the peace of God. That's tranquility of heart. Here, Paul's not talking about the peace of God. He's talking about peace with God. Uh, and what, what that assumes is, of course, before we were justified, we were at war with God. We, and Paul says here, we were his enemies. So we have to acknowledge that as we come into this world, naturally conceived, naturally born, we are bo conceived and born as fallen human beings. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He was talking about original sin. So as we come into this world, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are children of wrath. God's disfavor rests upon us. We need to have peace with him. We need to be reconciled to him because we're his enemies. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, since we've been justified by faith, now we have peace with God. There is no longer hostility between us and God. It's an objective peace, not just a subjective experience of peace. Now, bless God for the subjective experience. Paul talks about that too, as I said, in Philippians 4. He's talking here about the objective reality that God is no longer opposed to you because you now have a perfect righteousness. That's what you need to be in favor with God. And you couldn't earn it yourself, so it was given to you by Jesus Christ. Now you can enjoy the benefits of being at peace with him and being reconciled to the king of the universe. But notice Paul goes on to say that we've, uh, we've obtained access into grace. So this faith has led us to peace with God. This faith has also led us to obtain access into the grace in which we stand. Now, if you read Stott, he makes something of these two verbs, obtaining access and standing. So he says, you, it's like you've been introduced to the royal court. You've made your debut. You've obtained access into the throne of grace. But Paul goes on to say, you've not just been a, obtained access. You've not just made your debut and then you go home. No, you obtained access and now you stand in that grace. You live in it. You have a residence in the palace. You're a part of the royal family. You never leave the court. You're always in the court of grace. So this is an amazing benefit that has devolved upon us simply through trusting in the work of God in Jesus Christ and his promises. So we stand on our past justification. We enjoy the present benefits. And I have to ask you, are you enjoying them? Are you walking around as a man who has been greatly relieved of the animosity between you and God? You are at peace with the deity. Do you walk around as a man who has standing in the courtroom of God and always living in his grace? Is that on your mind as you live your life, day after day, relationship after relationship? We enjoy our present benefits. But notice, thirdly, that we anticipate our future glory. So you see, we are men who contemplate the past. We're very aware of present benefits, and we contemplate the future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this hope, when, when Paul uses the word hope, he doesn't use it like our English word hope. In common vernacular, if I hope, it's like, well, I hope my football team can win this weekend. Or I hope she'll say yes when I ask her. Or I hope the baby's born and everything's fine. Or it's, it's a wishful thinking about the future. That's not the way Paul's using hope. Paul uses hope to describe a certain reality of which you are guaranteed of the future. So the Christian hope is a guaranteed knowledge 
of some future blessed reality. So that's the reason we call it the blessed hope. It's a certainty. It's not wishful thinking. So remember that when you're looking at biblical hope, it is a guarantee. And he says, what do we have a guarantee of? Of the glory of God. So Paul in Romans 5, all the way through the end of Romans 8, now is describing the blessed results of justification and the knowledge of justification. First of all, objectively, if you have been justified, you will be glorified. Let me show you, for example, in Romans chapter 8. Let's go ahead and turn there. We'll come there some months later. But in Romans 8, verse 30, this is 2172, page 2172. Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. So the same group of people. He predestined the people, <clears throat> those same people, he called them. And those whom he called, he also justified. So if you've been effectually called, that is the internal call, then you have for sure been led to justification. And those whom he justified, Paul says, he also glorified, puts it in the past tense as though it's already happened. In other words, he's saying the future is a done deal. If you've been justified in the past, you have just as surely been glorified in the future. They're connected inextricably. So you can see then that we rejoice or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, what is this glory all about? Uh, Stott mentions three things I think is exactly right. First of all, you'll see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He no longer will be the, uh, appear in his humility as he did along the Sea of Galilee when he called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He will be as John saw him in Revelation chapter 1, gloriously, radiantly above the heavens and the earth. And to look at him in our current state would kill us because John says, I fell down as though dead. It was only the Lord himself who picked John back up and revived him. So we'll see Jesus in his glory. Secondly, you'll be glorified. And that's the reason you will be able to gaze upon him because you will not have your current body. You will have a glorified body because you're the brothers of Jesus Christ. You're in the royal family. So whatever he wears, you're going to wear. You're royalty too. So that's the hope of your glory. Thirdly, the new heavens and the new earth, everything will be glorified. The entire cosmos will be redone. So just as you have a resurrected body, the cosmos will have a resurrected body. It will do, the current body and the current body of the cosmos will dissolve and be resurrected into a new body. But notice it will not be floating around like angels playing harps. We'll be on a real earth. We'll have real heavens. We'll have a beautiful place to enjoy. So there will be some parallel between now and then, but it will be very, very different as well. That's the hope of the glory. And Paul is saying, since you've been justified, you can know that you have the hope of the glory of God. Now, he calls it a boast. We will boast. Now, look, if your justification before God, if your acceptance into heaven has anything to do with your performance, it would be prideful for you to boast about it. You with me? So if my salvation, my justification has anything to do with my performance, I can't boast about it because that would be prideful. The very reason that you can boast about your hope is because you were rescued without any credit to yourself. That's the reason we boast. So therefore we are boasting in the Lord when we're boasting about our hope of glory. There's some who think that it, the more humble approach for a Christian man if asked, well, do you think you're going to heaven? Is to say, using the common uh, English vernacular, I hope so. We'll find out, I hope so. Using the English meaning wishful thinking. And that seems to some to be very humble. Well, it is humble if you think that your justification has anything to do with your performance. If you think that you're accruing merit to yourself by obeying God, and when you accrue enough merit, he'll justify you, then of course it'd be very prideful for you to boast in the hope of the glory of God. But if on the other hand, you realize you had nothing to do with this except the sin that made it necessary, then the humble thing for you to do is to boast 
in what God has done for you. It has nothing to do with you. So humility then is to boast in your hope, to make it part of what you're proud of. You're not proud of yourself. You're proud of what he's done. Here's what Paul said. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So he says, let everyone who boasts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let everyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. So our boasting is only to be in the Lord. Paul is saying, if you understand justification through faith alone correctly, then your boasting in your hope is boasting in the Lord because it is the Lord who only provided for you in your justification. You see what I'm saying? So Paul says, we rejoice, we boast in the hope of glory. And uh, this makes all the difference in the world for us because we live by hope. How are you going to persevere in life? It's because you have something set before you, which is you've got your stakes driven in the ground. You know where you're headed. Moses, we know, was looking, Moses and Abraham both were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. They weren't just looking for the city of Jerusalem on the west side of the Mediterranean. They were looking for the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the writer of Hebrews makes that clear. They had a vision before them. They had something they were sure of. Abraham was sure of the promises of God. And he knew that they were going to, they were going to be given to him because it, righteousness had been reckoned to him through his faith. He knew that the promises would devolve upon him. What about Stephen? How did Stephen, the first martyr in the church, face the stoning that he endured? because of his testimony of Jesus. Well, you can tell when he's dying, where is he looking? He's looking straight to the Lord Jesus Christ in heavenly dwellings and he sees Christ standing and welcoming Stephen into the, into the kingdom of God in, in paradise. So Stephen had a vision. He had a vision of the future that enabled him to endure the present. Isn't Paul the same way? Think about even the Lord Jesus Christ for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So the shame of the cross was canceled because he had his eye on his future glory. So gentlemen, for us to live the Christian life, we have to be people who are vivified by the living hope that we've been given. We're sure of it, we're certain of it, we know where we're going, and we set our faces in that direction. And then we endure everything in this life. Christian hope is essential to the Christian life. Now let's look secondly at verses three through five. And Paul says, let me tell you something even more amazing. We boast in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. You say, why would anybody boast in their sufferings? Good question. Normally we don't want to talk about our sufferings. Our sufferings seem to make us appear weak or our sufferings seem unduly to call upon the sympathies of other people. We don't want to be uh, charity cases, whatever it is. We don't boast in our sufferings. But Paul says, actually, if you're a believer, you do. And here's why. Uh, because suffering produces perseverance. Now, notice that there are three times that Paul uses the word rejoice, or as I've said, it's the word for boasting. And uh, in the second and third times, you get words like not only that, are more than that. So Paul is building his case. His first boasting is that we're going to boast in the hope of the glory that's guaranteed through the methodology of justification that he's explained. Because of the way justification occurs, that it has nothing to do with your performance, you can be absolutely sure that it leads to the hope of glory. You boast about that. And then he says, not only that, let me take you deeper into this, we also rejoice in our sufferings. And here's why. Our sufferings produce perseverance. The word suffering is the same word for tribulations. Tribulations is the biblical word that often accompanies the activity that, that comes to us as a result of being in the end times. We're in the end times right now. That's the consistent testimony of Jesus and the apostles. The end times are from the resurrection uh, to the second coming or you could even say it's from the first coming to the second coming. These are the end times. We're in them, and when you're in the end times, you're between the ages. You're 
spiritually in the next age, but you're physically in the old age. And so there's always a tension. It's the tension of the already and the not yet. And because of that, we suffer. But Paul says that uh, these tribulations actually produce something in us. They produce perseverance. You find the same thing in James chapter 1, this wonderful little verse that's often uh, overlooked. When uh, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. None of us likes to think that the only way we can be developed is through suffering, but often is true. The great Malcolm Muggeridge, you know, the man who is a worldwide journalist, and then he was converted at age 65. Uh, when he was in his real upper years, in his 70s, he said that without suffering, life would be banal. He said that it would be very plain and ordinary. And he says that he has to say, he said, maybe it's an overstatement, but it's very close to the truth. The most valuable things I ever learned in life, I learned through suffering. You old men think about that. Is that not close to the truth? The most valuable things you learned in life came through suffering. I believe you could say that. And younger men, let the older men tell you that you're to value those moments when you're suffering because it's in those experiences of tribulation, affliction, and suffering that you are gaining life's deepest lessons and your character is being shaped. You may have heard the story about a missionary some years ago who was very discouraged uh, discouraged because he was having a hard time with the language, having a hard time with cultural transitions, and of course, not having acquired the language yet, not having led anybody to Christ yet on the field. He comes home for furlough, very discouraged, wondering if he should even stay in missions work. And he's just walking along the way, and he sees a little, it's the springtime, and he sees a little cocoon. And he can tell that the caterpillar or the new butterfly is trying to come out of the cocoon and really struggling and not seeming to get his way out of the cocoon. And so the missionary, just having mercy upon the little butterfly, takes his penknife and he just barely slits the cocoon. And the butterfly comes out and is deformed. And it dawns upon the missionary. Part of the way in which that butterfly's wings were developed was in struggling in the cocoon. And he arrested the development by slitting the cocoon and thinking he was helping the butterfly. You think that God could really help you if he would relieve you of your suffering. You have to realize you're that caterpillar who's being transformed. And the struggle is part of your development. And the father actually does know best. And he's the one who's got you in your cocoon. And it's there for a purpose. Remember that probably the most valuable things in your life are coming through suffering. Elizabeth Elliot, um, who recently died, you know, was a great missionary, then of course an author. We all appreciated her work. And uh, she and her husband Jim, you'll remember back in the 50s, were part of the famous group in Ecuador who were martyred. She lost her husband Jim Elliot to martyrdom uh, from the Alca Indians that they were trying to reach. First generation uh, missionary work. So, uh, she writes a book uh, called These Strange Ashes. It's a phrase that comes from her hero, Amy Carmichael, a great 19th, 20th century missionary just ahead of Elizabeth in age. And Elizabeth wrote this book, These Strange Ashes, and she recounted how she was, uh, when she was dating Jim, and Jim insisted that she have missionary experience before they get married. And so she goes on her own down to Peru right out of college, and begins to translate the Colorado Indian language. She finally gets a translator to help her, one of the older Colorado Indians. And she works with him for about six months, begins to develop her alphabet, and translates part of the Bible. After about six months, she used to meet Jim, her boyfriend at that time, in Quito, Ecuador, which is several hundreds of miles away and up into the Andes. She takes her translation work 
and puts it on the common carrier. You know, they're kind of like trucks with benches in the back. But they had, this one had a canopy, and she put, her, she put her suitcase on top. Meanwhile, before she left, her own, the only man who is willing to be her translator gets murdered by the Colorado Indians for betraying them and working with, with a white woman. So she lost her translator. She puts her translation on top on her way to Quito. When she gets out in Quito, someone has stolen her suitcase. These strange ashes. She has no translator, no translation, nothing at all to show for her first year of work. And here was her phrase. Here was her conclusion of the entire matter. She says, uh, it is... uh, uh, Just a moment. A senior moment. Hang on, please. Time out. (laughs) It is in accepting what God has given, God gives himself. It is in accepting what God has given, namely your sufferings, strange ashes, God gives himself. One of the more profound statements that I can't always remember that Elizabeth Elliot gave us. So suffering produces endurance. It produces perseverance. Now notice, perseverance produces character. It's precisely, it's not just the suffering that produces character. It's the suffering that is producing the endurance and the perseverance that produces the character. So character is formed through the suffering, but through persevering through the suffering. So it's both together. That's where your character, or you could translate it maturity, comes from. It's from persevering through tribulations. I remember going to the hospital bed of a senior woman years ago, Mrs. Richardson. She was actually the mother of one of my older friends, a man who was about 15 years my senior. It was his mother, and she appeared to be on her deathbed. She was actually in the hospital, and I went to see her, just a pastoral visit. And while I was talking with her, I'll never forget what Ms. Richardson said to me. Uh, She was a very godly woman, but a simple woman. And I just said to her, Ms. Richardson, what's your favorite hymn? And she not only gave me her favorite hymn, she gave me her favorite stanza from her favorite hymn. And it was, um, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, but I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. And I looked at this one, I thought, wow, no wonder she has this radiant appearance on her face even as she's on her deathbed because she knows that the Lord is sanctifying to her her deepest distress even now. Gentlemen, that's the key. That's the benefit of justification. You know where you're going. And some people who don't know where they're going, when they believe that the deal with God contributing something and they're contributing something, when the sufferings come, they begin to really worry about their side of the equation. Am I going to be able to sustain what I'm supposed to do in this relationship? And they begin to worry that maybe they're suffering because God has turned his face from them. Maybe he's, he's renouncing them because of all the evil thoughts they had or some of the bad words they said. Or you get all this massive confusion when you don't know where your justification comes from. But if you know that you're justified solely upon the work of Jesus Christ, then you know whatever gales and winds and storms come your way, they are from the hand of God who mercifully is developing you into his character so that you will be sustained into the very end. That's the difference between a person who has assurance of their salvation and a person who doesn't. And the only way you can logically have absolute assurance of your faith is if you know you're justified by Christ alone through faith alone. If you think you're contributing anything to that justification, you should not have assurance. And I know men well enough to know none of you should be assured of your behavior. Who knows what you'll do tomorrow or this afternoon? So you wouldn't be assured and you wouldn't have the hope of the glory. But if you're trusting in Christ alone, you can be sure and you must be sure because the Christian faith Depends upon your being assured. How are you going to go through tribulations if you're not sure where this is headed? 
If you're on a voyage and you know where you're going, you can get a little seasick and it won't bother you at all. You know where you're going. It's a beautiful destination. So it is with the Christian life. Samuel Rutherford, the great Puritan, said that here's the picture of the Christian man. He's got his feet solidly on the ground, his hands firmly on the plow, and his head in the heavenlies. So the heavenly-minded man, the one who's got his mind on the hope of glory, is the eminently practical man. We say sometimes, you know, that so-and-so is so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. I've never met a man like that. The men to me that divide churches and divide relationships and ruin their families, they are certainly not heavenly-minded. The men who seem to me to be building the city and building the nation and building the world more than anybody else are those who have their eyes firmly set on the hope of the glory. And the way that you have that hope is when you understand your justification. That's what Paul is showing us. You see the connection. Justification matters. It leads to a whole lifestyle, a whole stance, a whole certainty of being guaranteed the hope. And then, of course, Paul says, uh, C, character produces hope. So it's, you see, it's a cycle. Hope is producing the character, and now character produces the hope, and it spirals up, uh, if you will. It's a wonderful thing to realize that your sufferings, because of your hope, are actually accomplishing something. Sufferings are not merely meant to be endured. Sufferings are meant to be, can I say it, enjoyed because they're actually producing something. Uh, leave your finger there in Romans 5, but turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is page 2229. And see how the Apostle Paul puts it here. He says, so we do not lose heart. In other words, he's saying, even in our death, we don't lose heart. We don't think all is lost. Just the opposite. We do not lose heart, though our outer, this is verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. You say, light? My affliction you're calling light? Yeah, wait and see why. He's going to compare it to something even heavier than your affliction. Momentary? Yes, momentary. Your life compared to eternity, I think mathematically, is zero. What is 75, 80, 90 years compared to infinity? I think it's nothing. So it's a very momentary experience. Your light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. But look at these words, preparing for us achieving for us, accomplishing for us an eternal weight of glory. So gentlemen, when, you're, when you know where you're going, because of your justification, having finished the work of your justification before God, there's nothing you add to it in the future. It was done. Jesus Christ accomplished it. Your faith in time connected you to that accomplishment. It's done. It is finished, as Jesus said on the cross. Now you know you're destined for glory. Now all of your sufferings and tribulations in this life are accomplishing something for you. Now, let me try to explain that. Your sufferings, you know what a spring is. You know, if you put weight on a spring, then you take the weight off, the spring goes boing. Your sufferings are spring-loading you. They're weighing you down. When Jesus Christ appears, the weight of suffering is taken off. Boing! <laughs> There's great boasting and praise and glory to God. He's preparing you for greater worship. He's also building your character now in time. All of this is a blessing that comes to us through justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, thirdly, look at these verses 6 through 8. And although the word rejoice or boasting is not used here, I think it's implied and that is that underneath all of this, we're rejoicing in our salvation, the very way in which we were saved. We're rejoicing in the work of Christ. Or if you read Stott, he would say, really, Paul is saying two things here. Back in verse 5, he talks about the love of God being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 6 through 8, he talks about the work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. 
So both of these are sources of our strength and encouragement. But here specifically, I think the apostle is directing our attention to how we can know that as a result of justification, we shall experience glorification. They are inextricably connected. You cannot separate them. You distinguish between them. We know they mean different things, but you cannot separate them. And here he shows us why. First of all, notice Christ shed his blood for his enemies. That's the overarching reality. Christ shed his blood. That's what he did in time to accomplish your justification. Who did he do it for? He did it for his enemies. Now, the degree of God's love for us that has been poured out into our hearts, as Paul says in verse 5, is measured by two things. His love is measured, number one, by the cost of the gift that he gave us, and secondly, the unworthiness of the person to whom he gave it. Think about it. The measure of your love in giving a gift is how expensive is the gift and how worthy or unworthy is the person to whom you're giving it. In this case, God gave us the gift of the life of his own son, Jesus Christ. Nothing is more precious than that in all the universe. So you were given a gift that exceeds any gift that could possibly be given. You were given the gift of the life and death of the second person of the Trinity incarnate. That's how precious the gift is. That shows you how much God loves you. Secondly, look whom he gave it to. And you, you want to examine here for a moment the ways in which we're described in verses 6 through 10. Look in verse 6. We're called weak, ungodly. Look at verse 8. We're called sinners. Look at verse 10. We're called enemies. Weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. It would be one thing, Paul says, if God had sent his son to die for good people, people who had loved the Lord and, and now deserved to go to heaven and be one thing for God to provide for them, but for him to, to provide for someone who had opposed his kingdom with everything in their might and main, for people who were ungodly and unrighteous and wicked. Now there's an amazing act of love. <clears throat> and secondly, you see uh, that not only did he shed his blood for his enemies, but Paul then can ask the question, well then, how much more shall we be saved? Verses 9 and 10. Now the word salvation in 21st century evangelical circles most often refers to our justification. We'll say, when were you saved? Oh, I was saved when I heard the gospel and then uh, I'm in a Baptist church, and so I went down the aisle, and I professed my faith and gave my life to Jesus. That's when I was saved. So we normally mean the time of our conversion. That's when I was saved. Generally speaking, not always, but generally in the Bible, the word salvation applies to the end of time, that you'll be saved or delivered at the end of time. When God comes back to judge the world, you'll be saved. So if someone says, and Stott made this point in his book, if someone says, are you saved? You could say, well, yes and no. <laughs> I've been saved through justification, but I've not yet been saved through glorification. But I will be. I will be saved. But, but, I, but, I, but I have been saved in justification. So salvation actually has three tenses. You have been saved through justification. You are being saved through sanctification. You're being saved from the power of sin even as we sit here and listen to the Bible. It's having an effect of delivering you from the power of sin. So you're being saved. And then you will be saved when Jesus Christ comes back. Now here's the point Paul is making. He's saying, I want to show you why you, you've got to understand that your future salvation is a total non-brainer. No-brainer. And he says two th reasons. Number one, his death guarantees uh, our future salvation. His death guarantees our future salvation. So he says, we have if we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. In other words, he's talking about future salvation. Now he he's saying, look, if... 
your justification cost the death of the incarnate second person of the Trinity. If that's what it took to accomplish your justification, do you think that God is then going to decide not to save you at the end when it doesn't cost him the death of his son anymore? In other words, it's a a fortiori argument from strength, from the more difficult case to the easier case. That's what an a fortiori argument is. So like you could say to your child, you know, who's uh, wondering about whether you're going to help him with his tuition. You say, son, do you remember when you broke our neighbor's window? You know, if I got you out of that mess, don't you think that I'm going to be grateful that you're getting a college education? It's an a fortiori argument. So Paul is saying, if God sent his son to die for you to accomplish your justification, is it a no, isn't it a no, no-brainer? Certainly when he comes back, he's going to collect what he purchased. And he purchased you with his own blood. So it's an a fortiori argument. The same can be said for verse 10. His past grace toward enemies guarantees his future grace toward his friends. So here's Paul's argument. I've told you what a bunch of lousy, no-good sinners you are by nature. That is the group Jesus died for when he justified you. You were enemies of God. But look at you now. He says to the church, you're reconciled. You are his friends. So if he saved his enemies, don't you think he'll save his friends? (laughs) You see the a fortiori argument. Paul is saying you have every ground to stand on. You have every reason to be absolutely certain of your salvation. Once you give your life to Jesus Christ, you receive him and the gift of his justification. That's the point he's making. Now, lastly, look at verse 11. And the apostle says, more than that. (laughs) So he keeps building on the the way in which we're boasting. He says, okay, you, you boast in the hope of the glory. But he says, not only that, You boast in your sufferings. Not only that, even more than that, he says, now you boast in God. Gentlemen, this is the big deal of justification. It leads to worship. If you trust in Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone for your salvation, if you receive the way of justification of God, it leads to holy praise. You're boasting in no one but him. Let no flesh boast in the presence of God. So we don't boast in our flesh. We don't boast in anything we've done. We boast in him alone. He's done it all. So our justification leads to our worship. Think about what David says in Psalm 34. This is the delight of his life. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So David there is, he's in trouble. He's before Abimelech. He's he's concerned about his own life, but he says, I'm going to boast in the Lord. So he just bursts out with praise. Why? Because David knows that God alone is provided for his salvation. You know, Jeremiah says it this way. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast like this, that he knows and understands me, that I'm the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. The Lord delights when we boast in him alone. May I never boast about anything, says the Apostle Paul, but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the boast. That's what your justification by faith accomplishes. Do you see it? It accomplishes a sure and certain hope. You don't have to worry anymore about where you're going. You know where you're going. And you're delighting yourself in it. You've got your eyes set upon Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. Secondly, because you've been justified by faith, you now can actually boast about what sufferings have done in your life. It's caused you to endure and persevere. It's developed your character, and it's even given you more hope. And you can boast in the work of Jesus Christ because you know that 
he died, he died. And he died for enemies. Therefore, you know he's going to live for his friends. And he's going to bring you home. And ultimately, you can say, because of what he's done for me, I'm now his eternal worshiper. That's where it all ends. And that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous text before us with all of its profundity. And we, once again, will wade in the waters and pray that you'll take us even deeper that we may understand and believe and abide by the things that you've revealed to us. We want to thank you with all of our hearts for sending your son, Jesus Christ, for justifying us when we deserve the opposite and for giving us the certainty that this leads to eternal life with you. We pray that you'll help us to set our eyes upon the things that are above, not the things below, but the things above where Christ is seated at your right hand knowing that that's where we're headed. We pray that you'll enable us not only to endure and to buck up during sufferings, but to open our hearts to the things that you're doing in us through our sufferings, the accomplishments of our sufferings because we're justified men, knowing that you're making us men of perseverance and character and hope. And we thank you that you've given us all we need for life and godliness and you've prepared us to be your worshipers, not only in eternity, but even now. And may we be men who open our voices, our mouths, and we sing the praises of God. We devote ourselves to, to you on the Lord's day and to you every day in personal worship and family worship. And we of all the people on the face of the earth are eager to proclaim your greatness, to magnify your name. Go with us now as justified men. Lord, if there are any of us here who know that we've not received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and therefore are not at this point justified in your eyes. We pray that today, you, this will be the day when you grant us that great gift. Help us to share this gift with others that many of our friends and acquaintances may come to know you and enjoy these luscious benefits that devolve upon those who believe. Now we pray, O oh Lord, that we may be faithful to you, to you today and throughout this week. For we make our prayer in the name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.